Little Shakul was born in a hospital in Uganda. Unlike other Ugandan babies, Shakul had startling blue eyes, light hair, and a white birthmark down the middle of his face. Shakul's grandmother, Namatovu, instantly bonded with the child. However, Shakul's mum, Namatovu's daughter-in-law, became increasingly distant from the child. After a couple of months, Shakul's mother took him with her to her parents' home. Please never abandon the boy. If you ever get stranded, return the baby to me. I'll care for the boy, Namatovu told her. Despite those pleas, Shakul's mother soon abandoned him, fearing that he was a witch or likewise cursed. Shakul's father discovered his son naked on his doorstep and instantly contacted Namatovu. Shakul was cold, and in order to survive, he would need immediate care. Nomatovu stepped forward and became Shakul's carer despite barely having the means to care for him. Eventually, people took notice, and Shakul was registered into Companion's Child Survival Program. Shakul was taken for a medical exam, where he was diagnosed with Wardenberg Syndrome. With the support of Compassion, Nomatovu knew that she and her grandson would be safe. No longer abandoned, Shakul is a little boy who is growing in confidence because he is known, loved, and protected. story i know it's quite nice isn't it i mean at the end not not so much the beginning no but at least things improved for him so welcome to genetic drift the podcast where we take a deep dive into the world of genetic diseases and try to lift some of the stigma surrounding them once again i'm your co-host anthony and i'm juliet so today we're going to be covering wardenberg syndrome i hadn't heard of this condition before had you nope i have no idea what it is Okay, so Wardenberg syndrome is a rare genetic condition, or actually a group of rare genetic conditions, characterised by at least some degree of congenital hearing loss and a whole load of other symptoms. However, it's broken down into four types, which can also have their own subtypes. Now, interestingly, the pathophysiology, or how this condition comes from the mutations, isn't fully known. However, the theory that's currently in place is that it happens with an issue in the neural crest cells. The neural crest cells? Yes. So during embryonic development, you have this layer of cells, and they roll up into a tube, and they form the neural tube. And the neural tube is what becomes your spine. Okay, so, so as the baby's forming? Yes. Neural crest are these cells that break off as that tube pinches close and they form a whole host of other cells, including melanocytes and cells that are involved in the structure of your face. Melanocytes? Melanocytes are cells that are responsible for pigmentation, so like the colour of your eyes, your hair, and your skin. Okay. So, can you take a guess at what symptoms you might expect as a result? Something changing with your skin colour? Yes. So... One of the things that you can get are these patches of depigmentized skin. So you can have pale skin in fairly random patches across the body. 
I feel like I've heard of that, but not with Wardenbergs? But not with Wardenbergs. Yes, it also happens in Vitiligo. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. So this is not that. No, there are other symptoms that help distinguish it from vitiligo. So um, there is also hearing loss that's often associated with Wardenberg syndrome. There's also extremely blue eyes. Um, or you can get heterochromia, which is where the irises are different colours. So you can either have it where each iris is a different colour from each other. Like those huskies. Yes, like a husky has sometimes. Or it can be where one iris has two different colours within it. So one eye is two colours at once? Yes. Whoa. You can also get partial albinism as a symptom. So in this case, it's pale hair, eyes and skin. Difficulty straightening the joints. And in rare cases, you can also get a decrease in intellectual function. Okay. So unlike other genetic diseases we've discussed in the past, this seems to really affect people's appearance and be a little bit more visible. Yes, this is definitely a lot more visible than the ones we've previously noted. And also in type 1, there's quite a visible symptom where patients will have wide-set eyes. However, not everything is visible, because if you get type 4 Wardenberg syndrome, you can also get this condition called Hirschsprung's disease. Now, don't worry. Hirschsprung's disease is a congenital condition, and what happens is that the gut is missing these nerve cells called ganglion. So you're basically lacking an electric signal that tells the guts to move. So what this can result in is severe chronic constipation. So how do you think we go about working out if you have Wardenberg syndrome? I guess if you have different coloured eyes. That is one clue. So there are actually certain criteria to diagnosing Wardenberg syndrome. So you have major and minor criteria. And to be officially diagnosed with Wardenberg syndrome, you need to meet either two major criteria or one major criteria and two minor criteria. Gotta pass that test. Basically, yeah. So major criteria includes hearing loss, eye colour anomalies, white forelock. What does that mean? So it means like the front part of your hair, you get like this white streak. And another major criteria is having an immediate relative with the disease, which seems kind of obvious. Minor criteria include lack of skin pigmentation, a broad nasal root, so that just means that the top of the nose is wide rather than tapering into a triangular shape. And you also can get an eyebrow flare in the centre of your eyebrows. So it starts to look a little bit like a monobrow. Okay, so I'm just trying to picture picture all of these physical attributes and kind of think about how this might affect someone's life. It doesn't seem as extreme as perhaps sickle cell disease in terms of causing pain, but it you said it can cause deafness, so that could really affect somebody's life. Yeah, and um, when you look at it, the uh, hearing problems can be corrected, and if they are able to correct them, then most people with Wardenberg syndrome lead a normal life. However, those with rarer forms might have additional complications. So if you have type 4 and you also have Hirschsprung's disease, then 
you might have to have your large intestine removed to allow food to pass through your gut in a timely manner. That's quite serious. Yes, that's very serious, and it's thankfully quite rare. In general, though, this disease does not have an effect on your life expectancy. Yay! And interestingly, so we know the gene mutations associated with Wardenberg syndrome, and we're able to do DNA tests to identify them. However, the DNA tests don't let us know the severity of the condition, where other genetic diseases it might do. So you're not measuring how much of anything. You can just see that the mutation is there. Yeah, you know that something's wrong, but you don't know what that will do. Okay. So when we look at the genes, there's actually a few of them involved. Now, in each case, one gene can cause the disease. However, depending on the type will determine which gene can do that. Different genes can cause the same disease? Yes, because of them having some overall effect that's similar. So with type 1 and 3, they have the same gene that's mutated. It's a gene called PAX3, and this is a gene that you can find in both humans and mice. And there are many types of mutation for this gene for both type 1 and type 2. But this gene has a role in regulating another gene called MITF. What do you mean regulating? So it affects how that gene is read, like transcribed, and how the body makes use of that gene. Okay. And interestingly, MITF is mutated in type 2 Wardenberg syndrome. And MITF is a transcription factor, so it also regulates other genes. So the transcription factor from MITF ultimately results in melanocyte production. So those are the pigmented cells that cause the colour of your hair, your eyes and your skin. And in the melanocytes themselves, MITF regulates a gene called SOX10. This is getting very complicated. And SOX10 is mutated in type 4. So each one of them is related to each other based on the kind of chain that they're in. So that's how multiple genes can be mutated and cause subtypes of the same illness. Okay, so all of these genes kind of work together and it's just about where in the chain the mutation is that determines the type. But do all the types have the same symptoms? No. That's where, for example, type 4 you can get Hirschsprung's disease uh, where you don't in the others and where in type 1 you can get the wide-set eyes and how in type 3 you can also get problems with the upper limbs. So okay. there are differences, and that's not fully understood how, because we don't fully understand the pathophysiology, as I mentioned earlier. So we, we understand which genes it is, and that they kind of affect melanocytes and vague development. <laughs> yeah, and with type 4 there's actually multiple different genes that could be mutated, but to kind of summarise the genes that are mutated, all but two genes that you find in type 4, so all the types, there's only two that are in type 4 that encode something that's not a transcription factor. Everything else is a transcription factor, so all the other mutated genes affect how other genes are interpreted. And this is why they have that kind of broad effect. Okay, so the, it's not the genes themselves that directly cause the physical symptoms. It's what 
they caused to happen. Yeah, it would be like if you aggravated an interpreter, so they then decided to come up with the worst interpretation of what you'd said for someone. <laughs> okay, folks, we're at the end of my knowledge of biology. Goodness. Interestingly, though, all of these genes that are mutated are involved in melanocyte development. So you can see that common pattern there. And that's why in all types of Wardenberg syndrome, you will see this uh, pale skin and light eyes. Okay. So the types of mutations themselves also vary based on the type of Wardenberg syndrome. Type 4 is autosomal recessive, which we've obviously mentioned before. That's oh, oh, wait, wait, I got this. Autosomal is when it is not linked to a sex chromosome. And recessive means that you need a copy from both your mother and your father to have it. Yes. Yes! And therefore, neither of your parents have to have the condition. However, type 1, 2, and 3 are what are known as autosomal dominant. So only one of your parents need to have the gene. And that parent will have the condition. Okay. So with that, you can see some differences in prevalence around the globe. So globally, Wardenberg syndrome is found in 1 in 40,000 people. However, in Central Africa, it's more common, with about 1 in 20,000 people having Wardenberg syndrome. Um, while in Northern Europe, only 1 in 212,000 people are found to have it. So again, so, so there's some significant variation, but it's still quite rare. Yes, this is in general a very rare condition, and the different subtypes are also different prevalences. So type 1 is about half of all cases of Wardenberg. And type 1 was the... One that causes wider set eyes. Yes. And type 2 is about a third of all conditions. Type 4 is 5% of all Wardenberg syndrome patients. And then type 3 is the rarest, with only being about 2%, I think it was. The rarest of the rare. But interestingly, Wardenberg syndrome makes up 2-5% to of all congenital hearing loss. And if you go to a special school for the deaf, one in 30 children will have Wardenberg syndrome. That's really interesting. Oh, and that makes sense. I know deafness is often inherited. I know I've noticed that in my life, that deafness often runs in families. Yeah, you spent a little time at a deaf school, didn't you? Or was yeah. linked with the deaf school. I went to a school where half of the students were deaf or hard of hearing. And they did often come from families where deafness ran in the family. So this could have been one of the reasons why. Yeah, definitely. There are some other illnesses that can be caused by Wardenberg syndrome. There's always other illnesses. Yeah, but it definitely makes sense when this has such wide-reaching effects. Now, one of them is Hirschsprung's disease, which I mentioned earlier, where... It's inherited, you don't get the uh, signals sent to your gut, so you can end up with problems like the gut not moving properly, so you can have chronic constipation. If you're unlucky, the gut can stop, and then you can have a backing up within the gut, which can stretch it out, and you can get what's called a megacolon, which is a colon that is much larger than it's supposed to be, and is at risk of bursting. That sounds really painful. 
It is. It's extremely painful. And in that situation, you would have surgery to remove the colon to prevent that from happening again and to allow food to move more readily through the gut. Okay, so that's a really severe disease that could be caused by this. Yes. Another illness that's... Is it caused or is it made... Are you just more likely? It's caused by type 4. Okay, so it is caused. Yeah. Another issue that is associated with Wardenberg syndrome is an increased risk of rhabdomyosarcoma. That's another scary word. So rhabdomyosarcoma is a cancer of the skeletal muscle. Cancer. Not good. No, not good at all. And yeah, so that's quite an unpleasant one. And I think with that, we're going to take a break. We always take a break on the sad stuff. I know, but it's nice to then come into the genetic history rather than come out on it. Okay, be right back. Until we get an actual sponsor, this podcast is sponsored by Walrus Brush. If you need a clean walrus, you need Walrus Brush. Also featuring Walrus Mustache Wax. To make your walrus look fly. (laughs) Quarantine is getting to us. And we're back for my favourite bit. The history of the disease. Tell me about it, Ant. Okay. This is a little bit disappointing compared to other conditions. There have been no studies to identify the history of this illness. Aww. So, I've tried to piece together some reasonable assumptions. Okay. So, Wardenberg syndrome, with type 1, it's a mutation of a gene called PAX3. Now, mice also get a hereditary disease that is similar to Wardenberg with a mutation in PAX3. Based on that, you could use the assumption that I've used previously for haemophilia, that a common ancestor would be where that mutation originated. If I use that, the common ancestor of humans and rodents was lived about 64.8 million years ago. So it is possible that that particular type of Wardenberg syndrome could be around about 65 million years ago. However, because there's only two species that have it, it's also just as likely that there were just two separate mutation events that we can't date. Does this mean there's some mice with crazy eyes running around? Uh, Yes, but there's also albinism in mice as well, so... There's uh, quite a few conditions that cause colour changes in mice. Aww. Interestingly, though, the MITF mutation, which is found in Wardenberg 2A, has also been found in cattle, minks, mice, and a golden hamster. And just, just the one hamster. From what I found, it was just a golden hamster. <laughs> yeah, just one golden hamster with bright blue eyes. But they've all got forms of Wardenberg syndrome. And for them, the common ancestor, because of the spread of all these species, is quite similar, with golden hamster being rodents and that being the furthest related to us of the ones I mentioned. The common ancestor is again 64.8 million years ago. So at least some form of Wardenberg syndrome 
might be almost as old as dinosaurs. Cool, but this is all you hypothesizing. Yes, to some extent this is just hypothesizing because we don't have any studies that have gone into trying to genetically date this. So get on it, people. <laughs> so obviously, if we don't know how old it is and we haven't done any studies on dating it, we can't trace the origins of it either, which is unfortunate. So a lot of Wardenberg syndrome seems to have a lack of research surrounding it. That's a shame. Given all that lack of research, do we know why this condition is around? There aren't any explicit reasons stated, but the general consensus seems to be that because a lot of people experience mild symptoms, there doesn't seem to be any selection pressure against them, so people are able to reproduce and pass the gene on. And also some of these features, like startlingly bright blue eyes, can be quite appealing to some people, so it might in some cases, of increased reproductive success, provided that other symptoms did not cause a disadvantage to survival. Okay, that that makes sense. However, as you stated in the story at the beginning, some societies may ostracize those with this syndrome. It's not always going to cause attractive qualities. No, no, it very much will depend on where you are and how the culture views that condition at the time or those symptoms. So, seeing as we're in the history section, would you like to know when it was characterised? Yeah. So, this syndrome was first described by an ophthalmologist called Petrus Johannes Wardenberg in 1951. And I guess it makes sense that it'd be an ophthalmologist because he's staring at people's eyes all the time. So when he sees some eyes that are this staggeringly bright blue or have these multiple different colours and a wide set, then he's going to get curious and and then try and work out why it is and why certain families seem to have these symptoms. So, of course, people had had these symptoms all throughout history, but this was the first person to really research into it? This is the per first person to characterise it and give it the name, well, after himself, Wardenberg Syndrome, because, you know, scientists have always been modest. <laughs> But uh, the first possible written case of it was actually quite recent. 1916 is the only time that we have a case description of someone with symptoms that imply Wartenberg syndrome. That seems very late. Yes, it does. That is obviously based off the assumption that my guess at how old this condition is is correct. But yeah, uh, and throughout history... There have been different descriptions, including the very upsetting description that one person gave of um, what would be a Wardenberg syndrome patient as having a mongoloid expression. And that was a direct quote from the researcher. When was this? This was in the 30s, because the 30s seems to have a bit of a reputation for using terms that we now view as unsavoury. Oh, a little bit outdated. So where are we now with Wardenbergs? What's happening? You're going to be disappointed. There is nothing officially on its way as far as treatment for the condition goes. People are just dealing with the symptoms where possible, and that's it. Though I guess we do continually see new developments in helping people with hearing loss. So there are developments in managing the symptoms. Yes, definitely. Also, gene therapy might not be a good idea because if the genes are involved in development, 
then the process has already happened. So gene therapy shouldn't really make a difference to them. And the only way that gene therapy would work is if you were treating a patient whilst in utero. Okay, so gene therapy, not a huge option here. Though I guess if you were very concerned about passing on the condition, you you could consult with doctors to try and avoid? Yeah, you could have genetic counselling. So pe- uh, family members who have the condition, they could get themselves genetically tested. And for example, if they have Wardenberg syndrome type 1, you'll know they'll they'll be informed that it's a dominant one. And if they have one copy, then it's quite possible that with IVF treatment, that you could have a child that doesn't have the gene. Yeah, but we're not saying this is always a disease that's particularly bad or something to avoid, but it does vary in severity. Yes, and you can't judge the severity based off of the genetic data that we have. So how can we destigmatize this disease? I assume it's going to be around just being kind to people. Yeah, a lot of it's centered around just patience and small changes over generations to change a culture, because the more severe ones would be trying to remove that assumption that an unusual coloring of the eyes, skin or hair means anything about someone's character. Like that assumption with uh, that family in Uganda where where the mother thought that the child was a witch. So these are some really deeply entrenched cultural norms that can be quite difficult to overcome. Yes, and they're very difficult to address. So with that, people just have to try and be aware that, you know, looks do not make the person. And therefore, things like a white forelock or unusually colored eyes mean nothing about who the person is. Also, try to treat them kindly anyway, because they'll... Uh, someone with Wardenberg syndrome probably gets enough bullying as it is to last a lifetime. They don't need anything more. They don't need any more of it. A second thing would be to, that everyone should probably know that not everyone with Wardenberg syndrome actually becomes deaf. So don't make the assumption that if someone has the forelock and the wide set eyes and the pale blue eyes that they're deaf or that they're completely deaf either. The amount of hearing loss is variable between the types subtypes and the individuals. So as usual, if you're really curious about somebody's condition, and in this case you can often see it, you can nicely ask them if you're close to them. Otherwise, perhaps just let them get on with their day. Yes, definitely. So, sources. There's only one source that I would direct anyone to at this point, because If you have been following these sources, you're already familiar with the paper that I'm kind of using to get a proxy date for some of these illnesses. So there's one that's called PAX3 Gene Structure and Mutations, Close Analogies Between Wardenberg Syndrome and the Splotch Mouse by Tessa Bale et al. Great. And we also are now on the social medias. Ooh. So you can find us on Facebook and ask to join the Genetic Drift podcast group where we encourage you to discuss anything you've heard or or suggest new topics. And we also have a new Twitter account, Genetic Drift 1. So please start following that, share that with everyone, 
and let's get some of this information out. Great. This podcast's music, as always, is produced by William Kitchener Music. Now, interestingly, in this case, the condition kind of goes against our sign-off. However, it's still important to note that you should be careful with your judgment because you can't see the genes, so don't expect to see the illness. Goodbye. Bye.